welcome to the very first episode of Retro Game Audio. My name is Patrick, and I'm here with Steve to discuss the soundtrack to Magician for the NES. Hello, Steve. Hey, how are you doing, Patrick? I'm doing pretty good. Um, so we were discussing a lot of different uh, episode ideas, but uh, ultimately we picked uh, to do a sort of like up-close dissection of a Nintendo soundtrack. Uh, is Magician a soundtrack you were familiar with before? Um, you know, I, that was sort of my pick for this episode. Uh, <laughs> it, did you know this soundtrack? It's interesting because it's one of the soundtracks I've definitely listened to, but it's not a soundtrack I've ever really dissected. Mm-hmm. Um, mainly, I guess, you know, uh, I mean, it's it's a soundtrack that I definitely have heard many other times. It's just to really get take it and uh, give it the kind of treatment we're kind of thinking about doing here uh, is something that it's like further knowledge. You know what I mean? It's not really where I started on it. So it's kind of interesting. Um, so I'd say, yeah, I probably wasn't very familiar with this uh, beforehand. Uh, I'm more familiar with the uh, James Bond Jr. soundtrack than this oh, one, cool. oddly mm-hmm. enough. So um, it was kind of interesting to go and take a look at his first work in here. So Right. Yeah, this uh, this game was composed by a composer from the UK, uh, Neil Baldwin. He worked for a company called Eurocom, and uh, Magician is the first game they made. And uh, if you want to know more about the history of uh, all of the soundtracks he made for the NES, uh, he has that all detailed on his website, Duty Cycle Generator. I'll link that in the show notes. Uh, but it's a highly recommended read. Uh, he goes, you know, gives all these awesome like anecdotes about how they got started. Um, I remember he mentioned something about they, they didn't get any support from Nintendo. There was no like dev kits for them to use. So they basically had to reverse engineer uh, the, the tech of the NES to even get started to make their own dev kit. And, uh, you know, they were desperate for sources. Like they found some Japanese technical technical documents and uh, you know found a couple uh, Japanese women at a local university uh, who didn't have any technical knowledge but just basically asked them to help translate whatever they could so uh, yeah it's, it's a pretty interesting story so definitely check that out and uh, you can also listen to uh, all the soundtracks on there he he has everything embedded as well so um, yeah so I guess uh, I, I should start off before we do our little dissection here I just want to mention that this is one of my favorite Nintendo soundtracks and uh, something that I like about it is that uh, it, it strikes a good balance between doing some more like advanced sound design tricks, but uh, it, it does it all without getting too over the top and doing more of like the demo scene sort of type uh, music. Uh, it still feels like a very like Nintendo game soundtrack kind of thing, but um, there's just a lot of little neat details in, in the sound. and. Uh, something I like about it is that you can sort of go through track by track and there's almost like something new to talk about in every track where he does a little different uh, technique or uses a weird sound effect in it. So um, I feel like in, in some ways it's almost like you can see, especially because he kind of mentions on his blog, this is one of the first ones he's ever worked with. It's almost mm-hmm. like you can see an evolution, like um, that there's definitely some kind of growth even as he goes through it. Like the simplicity, like he calls out one track as the first track he put in there, and then kind of how different techniques kind of go in there. And as uh, he, he even kind of admits as he kind of like discovers some of the techniques that it, when he was doing this, he's been he used those over and over uh, in other games too. Right. Um, so so it's interesting to kind of see that evolution. You know, like a, a very 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 established you know uh, Commodore sixty four. Uh, composer working with new tech and it that's i think that was the most exciting part of it for me to kind of see him kind of trying to figure out how to make the sounds he likes to make on a different chip on this chip you know actually i was gonna mention uh, i think in the show notes you showed me like a quote uh do you have those do you have that on hand uh yeah actually do. let me just pick, bring that up it's a great quote um from him 
Yeah, I remember you sent this to me earlier, and I feel like it's a good thing to preface uh, what we're about to look at because it sort of sets up uh, the mindset of the composer here. Yeah, so Baldwin uh, had said, um, I've written my own music audio driver for the Commodore 64, and so, with the invaluable help of Tim Rogers, I set about trying to do the same for the NES. One thing I quickly real uh, I got to quickly realize was how utterly unsophisticated <laughs> the NES was compared to the uh, Commodore 64, and began to understand why most NES music sounded the way it did. You just couldn't do much with it, or much else with it. Right. So it's kind of interesting that... Um, you know, someone who, especially with the chips being very, very different, um, to kind of see someone come in from the angle of working on the 2A03 mm-hmm. by, you know, and especially it was the 2A03. That's some, that was kind of a question I had originally, but they were using an actual Famicom. They were not using the NES uh, the, or the European NES, I believe. I think they actually got Famicom consoles. From oh, Japan. okay. Yeah. Um, I think he mentions that. So they were working with actual Famicoms, which is actually really interesting because. Um, yeah, I, I I was actually trying to look that up to see if he was he wrote all of this on the two A O seven or how this exactly happened, you know. But it was actually on the original Famicom console. So I wonder, you know, if there's any kinds of I'd be that's a that's a curious question maybe someone who's listening knows the exact answer to. But I was wondering like if there's some kind of difference between that or maybe that's caused any issues, uh, especially when he was writing for NES, just kind of as an aside. Right. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't. Did he ever mention that in his? Uh, I you know, that... I, I don't recall. Yeah, I'm gonna have to dig through there to look at that. Yeah. Um, what mm-hmm. I should maybe clarify for the listeners uh, who might not know what you're talking about, um, mm-hmm. the two AO three chip is the uh, CPU of the NES, and uh, it has the Nintendo doesn't have its own sound chip. The sound chip is uh, integrated into the CPU, um, but the European NES has the two AO seven. I think. Yeah, I believe right? so. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, the European NES runs at a different frame rate and. Uh, so, like, there can be some complications with porting or some composers would have to, you know, if their game was in multiple regions, they would have to put some code in to reflect that. So, um, but, uh, yeah. But, yeah, what, going back to the quote about him saying how unsophisticated the NES audio was, I just, I find that pretty neat because it sounds like a negative, but um, mm-hmm. he, he turns that into a positive. I mean, he, he definitely explores the uh, all, all of the little nooks and crannies that he can find. And, yeah, uh, absolutely. You know, and fill, fills those gaps. So, I guess without uh, further ado, we sh- we should uh, get started here. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. So I'm gonna play a segment from the uh, first track. Um, by the way, if you're listening to the soundtrack on his blog, it's a different track order. We're using uh, what I call gameplay order. So if you're playing through the game, you know we're going like through the order uh, you would find the, find the tracks in. So uh, here's the title screen theme. So that was uh, the title screen music, or it's actually just an excerpt from it because it's a very long tune. Uh, that's sort of a reoccurring theme in the soundtrack. There's actually a few tracks on here that are like really, really long. Um, but yeah, did you have any thoughts on the uh, title screen theme there? 
I mean, it's interesting. There is um, kind of what I wrote down here, and just, just something you kind of notice through um, even what he says about the title screen, you know, um, the kind of slow attack square wave lead that he kind of uses. He mentions it himself, um, and it is obviously quite a long track. Um, but it's, it's interesting um, in that I think he kind of experiments a little bit with duty cycles in here. Yes. Um, yeah. I wasn't sure if there if you had some specific examples you wanted to point out, but I think that was the thing that caught my eye like or caught my ear right away um was just kind of the variation and kind of just almost like rotating and fluctuating and moving around which is kind of a theme to a lot of the tracks here like not staying on a single duty cycle for more than a couple notes at a time right um, which is it's a great effect if it's used correctly and he uses it very well yeah i actually do have an example here um let me uh play that here Yeah, it's cool. You get that, there's like that one moment later in the song there where it gets that really like gnarly sound on it. And it's a combination of what you just mentioned, uh, alternating duty cycles for every note. There's also like a little bit of uh, vibrato on each note, I believe. And uh, some of the notes attack at a higher pitch than what they sustain on as well. So it just has this really like weird uh, kind of warbly but layered sound to it that I like. And um, yeah, for the listeners who might not know what we're talking about with the duty cycles, uh, You'll often hear people refer to the square waves on the NES. Um, that's like sometimes somewhat of a mis misnomer in a way, though. Uh, what the NES has is two pulse wave channels, and those channels can produce three different sounds, uh, one of which happens to be a square wave, but the other two are what you could call uh, other kinds of pulse waves or rectangle waves. Um, it's the same reason you would call a, you know, a square is a type of rectangle, but a rectangle isn't necessarily a square. Um, the other duty cycles, they just have the same shape as a square wave, uh, but like the down part of it might be longer or shorter. Uh, a square wave is like even parts down and up when you look at the waveform. Um, so what he was doing there, like on this descending, like repeating arpeggiated notes, it's like every note would switch to a different voice, um, which is, uh, you know, like that's not super common. Like if you're listening more to like a Mega Man tune, like an A section might be using one voice, then the B section might switch to another voice. It's not typically too common to like uh, keep changing uh, your voices uh, in the middle of a single melody. So, oh, and before you mentioned that slow attack square wave lead, uh, he mentioned on his blog too that he was inspired by this uh, specific composer, Martin Galloway, uh, who did music for the Commodore 64 and ZX Spectrum. And uh, he didn't mention a particular tune, but I did some digging around Martin Galloway's work, and I found something from a game called Whizball, uh, which I think is possibly a source of inspiration here. Uh, let's give that a listen. Oh, great. Yeah, it's got those sort of like the, the long square wave notes that sustain but have a slow attack when they fade in. And then it also has like a descending, almost like arpeggio type thing as well. So, uh, you know, I don't know for sure that that's the particular track that he was talking about, but uh, it sounds like a good candidate. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> cool. So, um, yeah, I guess that about wraps up the uh, title screen theme. Let's uh, move on to the second trap. The uh, It's just a short little jingle, but uh, yeah. there, there's a little map tune where whenever you're approaching the next level, it uh, plays this little tune here. 
Cool. So, I mean, it's uh, just a short little jingle. There's not too much to say about it, but it, it does employ um, an echo effect in it that's kind of interesting. And you hear it more in later one of the later tunes uh, done kind of the same way, but uh, what you're hearing is actually two staggered voices. So, like, whatever sounds like 16th notes to you, it's going to be uh, like eighth notes in one of the square wave channels and eighth notes in the other, and then they're offset. They just sort of fill the gaps. They're layered in between each other. Uh, and I have an example uh, sort of slowed down and isolated here, what one of the voices sounds like by itself, and then you can hear the other voice uh, added on to it. So yeah, it's a, it's just a neat little trick, and uh, again, it's not it's just a short jingle, but uh, the fact that for even such just a little uh, kind of throwaway track uh, that he's thinking outside the box and how to make it sound interesting is sort of indicative of uh, the the sort of attention to detail you'll see throughout the whole soundtrack. I, I think so, yeah, and it's it's actually really interesting because uh, you know it, it doesn't necessarily sound. It, it, it one of the things that I think is so interesting about the soundtrack just as a whole, and I mean we're gonna see a lot more of it. But some of the sounds there, even as someone who writes a lot of uh, Famicom Nintendo music, it's very interesting, like how he actually made them. And even just hearing that jingle, like it, it almost doesn't sound like Famicom. It doesn't sound like uh, mm -hmm. the two pulse waves. It sounds more like he's able to use like wavetable synthesis or something a little different there. Right. Um, and there's plenty of other sounds I can think of that we're going to hear that are like that. But that that was a great example of just kind of like really taking and using and kind of crafting the notes kind of from start to finish, not just what, you know, not just using the uh, standard uh, cycling of it, but just kind of really taking it and making it sound real um, mm -hmm. and, and making it sound almost alien to me as someone who loves yeah. Nintendo music. It, it has a very different sound. And, right. Yeah. It's just like the title screen track from before that segment mm -hmm. I played where it starts to get really weird sounding. It's like, it, yeah. it almost doesn't sound like an NES, uh, mm -hmm. which is a fantastic uh, yeah. effect. Um, next up is the track uh, Town of Serena. Uh, this is cool because uh, if you haven't heard the soundtrack before, all you heard before was like a really repetitive title screen track and a really repetitive <laughs> little map jingle. But here we have some like uh, actual uh, background game music that is pleasant. So let's give that a listen.
think the most interesting part about that track is really kind of how this that like extra that lead comes in right kind of in the middle of it um you're not really expecting there to be a, a nicely crafted lead that's kind of like a violin or i mean it, it has like a really nice effect and i think that kind of over the top of all the pluckiness that you hear there and i mean like a well-crafted lead like that with a little bit of echo it's such a great effect and it, it's not something you hear in a lot of nes tracks right yeah i like how all and all of that that pattern like every note begins with a uh, this sort of plucky sound like you mentioned um and I think he mentions it on another track later that he was inspired by trying to make a sort of like guitar-like sound. Like you, the when every note hits, there'd be a sort of attack to it, like you were um, plucking a string with a pick. Um, so yeah, that that's the sort of uh, like real-world inspiration he had for that uh, instrumentation. So uh, next up is this track uh, called Wilderness. It's like the first uh, like you've left the main town and you're in the first like out uh, outdoor area where you encounter enemies. So let's give that a listen. the uh, wilderness track um he mentioned on his blog that you hear the, the swelling noise parts and uh he intended for those to imitate a cymbal crescendo um but it came out sounding more like wind which actually i think fits the game uh, pretty well because uh once you leave the town you're in this very like dusty kind of desert area everything's very yellow there's kind of like sand everywhere so it sort of fits the atmosphere well and uh the atmosphere building is something you're going to hear uh, even more of in upcoming tracks. Um, but yeah, the, to have sort of a wind sound effect in a tune where it's a very dusty, it's kind of dead-looking area, I think fits very well. No, it's interesting because I think that even as someone who kind of works with the chip now, it's kind of an effect that people realize that you can kind of do. And I think a lot of people... <laughs> when writing for nes or something discovered it by accident <laughs> right and it's funny to hear that you know and i love this kind of stuff like that someone else who was working with this chip almost 30 years ago also discovered the same trick um it's really kind of it's kind of fun to, to hear and i thought that was kind of really cool for him to say that because it's like i definitely know that when i've been writing like stuff for backgrounds or for you know just sound effects or whatever for various soundtracks that I'm like, oh, you can make this like nice wind sound. And I wasn't trying to make that sound. I just kind of did. Um, and I love that kind of stuff, though. And I, that, that human aspect of it, like to just discover something and discover that it works even better. And to remember that is kind of great. So I'm glad that he pointed that out. And Absolutely. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, I think he also mentioned that's one of his favorite tracks, too, um, mm -hmm. which is cool because I definitely that's something else I like about the soundtrack. We're talking a lot about the sound design. Um, but this uh, soundtrack has its share of these sort of somber, uh, melancholy, you know, moments. And uh, that's something I appreciate a lot. So, yeah. Well, the uh, next track is, well, I guess there's a track I wanted to skip. There's a battle theme. It, after, once you get through the wilderness, there's a boss fight. 
However, the reason I want to skip it is because the battle theme is actually just sort of a segment of the final uh, boss music. Mm -hmm. uh, so we can get to that towards the end. So um, the next area is the lake level. Let's give that a listen. that's the lake track um that's actually the first song any song he wrote uh, ever uh in the data it's the first uh, song in the soundtrack and uh yeah i love that song a lot uh, i remember opening up the soundtrack at random i think someone had mentioned they liked the music from this game and i just listened to that track straight through and i was like wow this is this is really cool um i like it. it's where you sort of hear the first use of the arpeggio effect that the, the very fast bloom, bloom, uh, it sounds probably stupid trying to sing it but um <laughs> yeah it's a neat effect you'll see that a lot in uh european nes soundtracks uh european composers were heavily influenced by the commodore 64 uh and how uh composers utilize the sound chip on that system uh the commodore 64 only had three channels of sound uh so with even like less voices to use, there was more incentive to cram as much as you could into a single channel. So the whole idea of the arpeggio effect is to sort of simulate a chord just by alternating the notes uh, in a chord uh, rapidly, kind of like a telephone ringing. So, um, but again, that's, that's something that's neat about the Magician soundtrack is some of the European NES soundtracks go like really overboard with it. Absolutely. And uh, yes. yeah, the, you'll hear on every track, like I'm thinking like Big Nose of the Caveman or something oh, like that, yeah, where yeah. it's just, it's nonstop arpeggios yeah. all the time and it gets to be too much. But uh, here, you know, this is like uh, the sixth track, uh, you know, in, in the playlist here. Um, and it's the first time we're hearing it. So I think, I think that's really cool. Yeah. And, uh, oh yeah, I remember you were mentioning earlier, we were talking about this before recording, that uh, he said something about being inspired by Rob Hubbard, uh, and we, we didn't necessarily hear it in this track very much, but, uh, you know, in his in his head, he yeah, was thought, inspired by Rob Hubbard. So. I thought that was interesting that he, I mean, he mentioned that, I mean, if I was looking at what his blog had said, and he said that he was very influenced by Rob Hubbard on the lead. Um, okay. And I, I can hear a little of that, but I mean, he definitely also mentions that he is a guitarist, and it kind of sounds like a somber, like NES guitar track, uh, more right. so, especially the pl the pick and everything kind of on the lead. Um, and maybe he was referring to the ARPs being kind of Hubbard-esque, um, but mm -hmm. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Rob, Rob Hubbard, uh, if the listeners aren't like already intimately familiar with his works, uh, he's a composer we're going to have to do an episode on. Absolutely, uh, yeah. He's done a lot of great music. He has a very unique sound on the NES as well. Um, so, yeah, he's he's a fantastic composer. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Ooh, yeah, this this uh, next track is awesome. Yeah, I'm just, uh, yeah, I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to play it right now. Go for it. Okay, and so I just realized that maybe I shouldn't have played that track without uh, any preamble, because if you have a dog in the house, it might be barking now. Uh, apologies <laughs> for that. But uh, yeah, that is the uh, Merrill Forest track. Uh, and as you can probably imagine, those uh, that really annoying chirpy sound at the beginning was meant to be uh, crickets, which is really cool. Uh, yeah, any thoughts on that, Steve? I, d- I thought, I mean, it's interesting. Uh... To, to kind of put that sound effect in there. And I mean, uh, again, we kind of were talking about the, the limitations here. Um, as an NES composer, really only having two pulses, the triangle, the noise channel, and a DPCM, which is just very simple uh, drum samples in this case, um, to take the risk of actually using one channel just to create a cricket sound effect um, and still have good music around it is really, I think, kind of daring. Um, especially considering the idea of like, you know, kind of cramming in it, as you said, kind of like with like uh, Commodore 64 composers, they're so used to doing so much with so little um, to kind of do that is kind of uh, great. The other thing too, is this is a really long track. Um, Mm -hmm. And like, and you know, and maybe some of our listeners know, most NES soundtracks honestly were about 14 minutes long, maybe 12 to 14 minutes long. So to make something this long that builds this much, that starts so low and actually kind of goes through is very unique. Um, Oh, absolutely. You won't won't find many like almost through composed tracks on the NES. And 
Um, uh, there's other ones on here too that are very similar to that too. So that's a very unique part of his style. Absolutely. I feel like by the time the drum beat kicks in, like a Mega Man song would have looped once, if not twice. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, yeah. Which, uh, not a knock on Mega Man music. I mean, God, we're, yeah. uh, we're going to be talking about that a bunch as well. So. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just, it's different is what it is. I think that's the exact word. Um, it, it's a different approach. And, you know, I think that in just kind of as an aside, I think that a lot of times with Commodore 64, compositions in general they are more like that they all like just kind of thinking about that you know and from kind of his background um and you can correct me if i'm wrong but like a lot of those commodore 64 games have like amazing long intro tracks that are like oh. six minutes long that, you know? so, that's like a reoccurring thing with commodore 64 games where they'll have like an awesome like four minute five minute long like intro yeah. tune then there'll be like one basic in-game track <laughs> and like maybe a game over jingle and then like there might be like four levels that don't have any music at all and it's like yeah they, they used up all the the memory just or you know for that one particular track. the nes you know and other consoles were much better about having consistent soundtracks throughout like i grew up with a uh, commodore amiga computer mm-hmm. and like, it was not uncommon to have a game that had like a title tune and then the rest of the game had no background music at all oh so, wow yeah <laughs> well then, then i learned something too just now <laughs> oh cool. yeah it, it, amiga music is something i'm definitely gonna want to take a crack at in a future episode so yeah no that would be great <laughs> um next up is the uh, mount vunar uh, caverns level let's give that a listen That was uh, Mount Vunar Caverns, or actually just a segment of it, really, because this is one of the longest uh, NES BG tunes, uh, BGM tunes in existence. It's uh, over six minutes long. Uh, of course, it achieves that by having a lot of like repetitive sections, so it's not that taxing on the data. Um, you know, and you can just sort of like loop a section and then layer a new voice into it uh, for you know a section but um you know, like a bunch of years back, there was a forum discussion trying to like figure out what are the longest nes tunes out there and uh so we sort of like crowdsourced and everyone was putting in recommendations you know finding songs that were two minutes long two and a half minutes long and eventually i came up with a list where i truncated everything that was under two and a half minutes uh and everything i could find i'll have to like link this in the show notes or just like sort of recompile that list but um i believe this was number two on that list so uh you know, it's very repetitive. There, there is a section later on where the drum beat goes into more of a rock and like double time type of thing. Uh, so it gets kind of like more exciting, uh, I suppose. But uh, yeah, it's, it's just funny to, to think like, you know, we're talking about the soundtrack being different. And this is a perfect example of that, that, you know, you have a song and any a song that's over six minutes long. I mean, that's like unheard of. So. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, it's really funny. I have your list in front of me. Um, oh, okay, so, you found yeah, it. I, yeah, I found it. Yeah, from 2011. Um, Magician, this track was uh, six minutes and 24 seconds long. It's number two. The longest track is from Zombie Nation. 
Oh, I forget. Yeah, there, there's uh, the the track in Zombie Nation. I think is like a name entry tune or something like yeah, like really... a round select. Yeah, yeah, round select, <laughs> and it's like, why on earth would that be the longest tune? Like that is the most absurd thing ever. <laughs> and it's funny because then uh, a track that's coming up pretty soon actually is also number five on that list. So that's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, I remember thinking, like, uh, there's a bit of a tangent here, but mm-hmm. I remember, like, having difficulty, like, trying to figure out whether or not I should count the Mega Man 6 ending. Because Mega mm-hmm. Man 6 does something kind of unique where it uh, it does, like, a medley of oh, yeah, yeah. previous mm-hmm. tunes in the soundtrack, which is really cool. But it's it's all of these different tracks stitched together. They didn't actually compile it as, like, one long file. Yeah. Uh, which is pretty... We'll talk about that more when we talk yeah, Mega absolutely. Man, so... <laughs> um, uh, oh, yeah, I forgot. I had in my notes here... Um, I want to mention that uh, something I like about this track a lot is that it reminds me of John Carpenter's music. Um, it has like this sort of the noise pattern in the drum beat reminds me a lot of like a drum machine, like this sort of where like the different hits, uh, you know, sound different from each other. And uh, if you were trying to like arrange this track for live instruments, I would think a drum machine would be a p- perfect fit and not actual percussion. It just sort of has that like uh, 80s, like electronic music sound to it. And uh the song also has like this sort of bass line, which I could sort of picture being like a played on a Moog synthesizer or something like that. So yeah, let me just play an excerpt from uh, John Carpenter's Assault on Precinct 13 theme here. So, yeah, he doesn't mention uh, John Carpenter as an inspiration on his blog anywhere, so it could just be, like, a coincidence. Um, I think he mentions uh, Tangerine Dream and some other artists, though, that, you know, uh, you know maybe, maybe he was listening to that. Maybe that was an inspiration. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, let's take a look at the next track. The, this is the Puzzle Room track. It has a kind of weird, strange sound to uh, look out for in it. puzzle room track uh i think one of the sort of defining features in it is uh the vibrato is this very like squirrely sort of sound to it um it's like in the second the b section i guess you would call it of the loop um here i think i have a an example here of how that voice was achieved um this is a sort of similar effect to the map tune from earlier where the two different voices are actually layered with each other and when it gets to the vibrato section uh the voice is actually trade off doing the vibrato so there's not one continuous voice doing it which is sort of an odd way of uh of doing it here i'll just i'll play the example so you can you can hear what that sounds like when you drop one of the voices out that it's just sort of doing half of it so it's like the two voices are just sort of working together to achieve the full effect there yeah, did you have any uh, notes for this track? I mean, I just think, uh, well, actually, it's interesting because I, I did not, but just hearing 
uh, kind of a comment, I guess, just hearing it kind of isolated. It, it's really cool how he did that. Like, I mean, I, that's just what's so, so amazing about the soundtrack sometimes. And especially, like like I said, I, I wasn't too familiar with it. Just kind of really looking. And, and he, I mean, this is the kind of stuff while he was doing this, he discovered. Yeah. Um, and so it, it's kind of cool to see, again, that his evolution, different techniques, and just kind of finding this stuff out as he goes, you know, using techniques he knows already. Um, and using it on a different chip. So it, it's cool that he has like a completely kind of different approach. Right. Oh, yeah. Something else I almost forgot, too. There's actually a cool artifact here, which uh, I don't think was intentional necessarily. But there's a weird artifact. If you listen to the triangle wave, you can hear a uh, change in volume between the drum hits. Here, let me play uh, an example of that. Oh, wow. So uh, for any listeners who don't know why this is like a weird artifact, uh, the triangle wave is not supposed to be able to change in volume. Uh, like on the NES, you have 16 different volumes that the, the pulse waves and the uh, noise channel can be, right? It can be either volume zero, which is off, or one through 15 are your options. Uh, but the triangle wave doesn't have any volume control. Uh, so like you'll never hear like your typical NES baseline like fading out, you know, like in a Mega Man game, the, the galloping baseline never gets softer or, or, or louder. Uh, but there you hear the triangle wave pulsing in between every drum hit, this sort of sound. Um, and what that is, and I don't really know why this happens. Maybe you have, more, I don't know if you have any more insight to this, but it has something to do with sample playback. Um, when you're playing samples on the NES, it can drain from the volume of the triangle channel. So it's like some, it's a sort of like a roundabout way of being able to control the volume of the triangle a little bit. Um, but usually when you hear it in an NES soundtrack, you can probably assume it's just an artifact and it probably wasn't the composer, you know, milking that intentionally. Uh, but, you know, who knows? I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I think that I think it just happened to be uh, unintentional, but it's still kind of a cool uh, phasing effect. Um, with I find that a lot with working with the DPCM, um, and I will probably talk a lot more about, you know, channel clicks and different things like that kind of later uh, in a different episode. Mm -hmm. But um, it, it, it is, I guess, almost unpredictable what it's going to do to the volume sometimes. Um, some samples will make the triangle like almost disappear when I've messed with oh, it. Oh, wow. I've never, I've never actually yeah. gotten it to, you know, be that extreme before. Yeah, so. it, it'll, it'll cancel it out and like, I won't even hear it, it unless it's doubled or something. So, um, yeah, I know. But, in Fama Tracker, there's like some sort of like reset type effect or like the mm -hmm. delta modulation that can somehow impact that. But I've never like st studied that too closely, so that's, that's yeah. something I have to research. So yeah, it's it's I mean it basically is kind of a flush of the channel. It's called it's the Z command in uh, Fama right. Tracker, but we can definitely talk about that in a different episode. Yeah. That would be really fun. To oh, talk that'd be about. great. Yeah, because I throw the Z command on the samples without even knowing what the hell it's doing. So yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it sounds good when you do that. It's right. you know Konami composers love that. Oh, cool, cool. Yeah. Uh, next up is the uh, Treasure Chamber and Fountain uh, tune.
Yeah, that's a that's a weird track. Oh yeah, like just chord wise, it's I mean, it kind of goes in a direction you didn't think. It's like it kind of uh, you know, for lack of a better term, kind of reminds you of the Final Fantasy kind of jingle thing. But then it kind of takes its own kind of turn, right? <laughs> chord wise, a, a, a more like sour kind of turn. Mm-hmm, um, absolutely. But yeah, I, I like the echo effect in it a lot. It gets pretty dense. Uh, and there's a couple things going on. It's it's doing the same thing as the map track that we heard earlier, where those two voices are just layered in between each other. Uh, I think I have an example here of the voice uh, isolated. So yeah, you can, you can hear how it sounds by itself, and then when the other voice kicks in, how it com- completes the picture there. And uh, yeah, I, I just think it sounds cool. Again, it's going into that weird territory of like, uh, it almost doesn't sound like an NES. Um, I mean, if you've heard like a lot of NES demo tunes and have or have heard a lot of uh, people like really milk the sound chip, maybe it's not too out there. But in terms of like your average game soundtrack from the time, uh, you know, that definitely stands out in the, its sound quality. No, absolutely. I would agree. Cool. Uh, next up is the Maze of Doom. interesting again like the fact that we kind of have a build up here Mm -hmm. um and you know we were talking about kind of like how other nes composers have done this in the past and how it's kind of uh you know the the goal is to kind of get about 50 seconds to a minute and 20 seconds of kind of music um that kind of repeats you know and that's largely due to kind of like the, the structure of stages and whatnot um, yeah. You know, like, I mean, some of the stages aren't really that long, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it's really interesting to, to have the ability or the, the want to take that risk of having something that actually builds, um, you know, and, and obviously the game, the gameplay and the pace of the game kind of have to match that. Yeah, because um, if the listeners aren't aware, this is a weird, uh, I'm not sure what to call it, like uh, a uh, platformer puzzle adventure game. It's it's a weird hybrid. It's like it's a platformer, mm-hmm. but it's also elements of an adventure game where mm-hmm. you start off talking to townsfolk and you have to learn spells and it's it's really complicated. You get all these different like 
uh, what do you call them? Like different spell segments that you chain yeah, together the, to create different. I forget spe- what they call them in the game. It's like fur, something with a ph. Right, right. right. Yeah. yeah, there's like different like consonants that you like, string mm-hmm. together. So it has mm-hmm. it, that puzzle element, platformer thing going on. But yeah, it's it's not like levels that you run through and shoot everything really quickly. And uh, you know, it's something. It's a game you're supposed to take some time in. So yeah. And, uh, yeah, I think the one note I have for the songs, I like when it first builds up, you know, it starts off with one voice by itself. Then you hear another voice kick in that's very quiet, and that one starts to, you know, crescendo. And as that voice builds up, it has this sort of nasally sound to it. And uh, I like that sound a lot. It's What they did is they doubled up the part. Um, the other voice that kicks in is, like, two octaves apart, but it's also detuned a little bit. So it's like, uh, I don't know what you would call that exactly. It's just... Uh, it's like detuning an oscillator and synthesizer, basically. So mm-hmm. you get an, an, a harmony that you couldn't play on a piano because uh, it's like in between notes. So uh, yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah. Oh yeah. This uh, so this next track, uh, Dungeons, is uh, has music that you probably wouldn't think would uh, belong in a dungeon. Here, let's give it a listen. So for a soundtrack that does a really good job with uh, these ambient tracks that match the in-game environments very well, uh, it, it seems a little out of left field to have this Dave Rubeck-inspired jazz tune for the dungeons. Uh, do you have any thoughts on this track? I, I just think it's funny that in his own particular notes, he also comments on how odd it is. Uh, he literally says, how odd. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so he, he knew it was strange. Yeah. it's a It's a cool track, though. Yeah, I think so. Absolutely. And it's kind of a nice change of pace. Um, and, you know, it's kind of like when you're in a dungeon or anything like that. And I mean, it, it shows that he had some thought in that, you know, like that a, a dungeon should be a little bit more serious, perhaps. Uh, and it was clear. I mean, again, like uh, a lot of the, if we look at some of these composers who were making games at this time, not all of them actually knew what game they were working on. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and so one of the benefits of of uh, the company being smaller and him having more hands-on is that there is kind of tailored to atmosphere kind of elements here and i'm sure that that the dungeon and the way he thought about it really kind of comes out in that tune whether or not he remembers that or not on his blog right um, i think that it was intentional it really sounds that way yeah and uh yeah i love it and i love that sort of like take five sound it has mm-hmm. uh you know it's like it's definitely riffs on take five just sort of put back into four four in a way so very cool track yeah. Oh, uh, this next track. Uh, this is the battle, the final battle theme. Uh, it sort of encapsulates. Ca- encapsulates is that the right word? I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> it sort of it includes the uh, battle track that you would have heard fighting bosses earlier, um, but then it builds on that theme and just riffs on it and keeps adding on to it. Um, I have a segment here. It's an abridged sample, uh, but even then, it's pretty lengthy because uh, to hear what's going on in the track, you sort of have to hear how these different voices keep piling on and it achieves a really cool effect. Let's give that a listen. 
that track's really cool. I, I like. I just like how it takes its time and it keeps adding these new voices on, and uh, it just has a re- really cool driving beat to it as well. No, absolutely, and it like as uh, I was saying, kind of before the whole thing or whatever. Um, this is uh, on your official list the fifth longest track. Oh, okay, uh, yeah. For NES, that makes sense. <laughs> Yeah, so this would be the fifth longest track on any uh, NES, uh, any, any, any NES game. That's hard to say, any right. NES. Any NES. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> to clarify, the longest that we found, at least, you know, who knows, there yeah. could be something else hiding, but, you know. If there's any other longer ones, let us know in the, com- like, you know, in the comments or whatever. Oh, We'd be, yeah. I'd love to know. <laughs> um, yeah, and I'll, I'll put a list, I'll, I'll put that list back into the show notes, too, so you, if anyone's curious what other stuff is on there, uh, you know, you'll get to see it. Yeah. And, uh, Something I like about that track a lot is, I don't remember if you mentioned it for this one or for another one, but uh, it has a really nice full uh, snare drum sound to it. Oh, yeah. And uh, the way he achieved it is he he has a sample playing in the sample channel of a snare, but he also doubles it up with a bit of noise. And uh, just those two voices combined give like a really full, thick uh, snare sound. So, um, I mean, you compare that to other NES percussion you know typical uh, drum tracks in any song they'll never have like that hard hitting of a snare usually um i mean the best example i can think of comes from the gimmick soundtrack mm-hmm. uh, oh yeah th- that has a fantastic really high quality snare drum sound in it which is it's done the same way it has a snare sample and a noise doubled up although the gimmick the the sample used in gimmick is probably a bit better than what was used in here so yeah, I wonder if that has something to do with um, for gimmick. Did gimmick have the regular uh, DPCM or did it have the adapted one? Or you know, I, the, I'm pretty sure it just had like the normal DPCM. I'll, but, have, uh, to, I'll have to look that up. But you know, they, they had a lot more room to work with because mm. they still had the expansion chip. So yeah, I mean, it, I, I think of like bad snares. I think of like I think Lagrange Point has a pretty bad snare. <laughs> like, <just laughs> oh, that's that kind funny. Of, like, that's funny. Yeah, you know, like that snare that's kind of like um, dull, and yeah. to kind of, and you think of gimmick, or you think of this one in particular, it has a pop, and a, oh, yeah. as I was saying, kind of during the break, but kind of uh, almost, um, I guess Commodore sixty four in nature, that like crisp snap that you get from that chip, you know, and uh, that's kind of rare in this. So he probably knows that technique, or it's something that it, it sounded right to him, and I think that's really cool. Like that is a really nice crisp snare yeah so oh yeah something funny it's somewhere on his site there's a q a section with him and uh, i remember years back i sent him a question asking about uh you know like where where did his samples come from and uh it's kind of funny because he mentioned something about i think just getting them from a, a sampler of some kind i don't remember what kind it was or that also when he was first experimenting with samples he also ripped them from super mario brothers 3 and uh on his blog he he says like he can't remember where it came from but if nintendo is reading uh you know he definitely didn't get it from super mario brothers 3 kind of like wink wink uh but no i mean i i really don't think the samples are from mario though i think they sound different so i'm pretty sure those are i think he did actually get them uh you know from some other source so yeah the mario samples are like a tom and that like you know that yeah timpani and yeah. yeah Um, all right, next up, I guess, is, uh, yeah, yeah, we've got, I think, two more tracks on here, unless if I'm skipping any jingles. But yeah, the next one is the first uh, epilogue track.
so there's a happy little track we have at the end there um yeah that's that's when i was talking before about having like these incessant arpeggios that's sort of what i have in mind where you just have these constant bleepy sounds throughout the song uh which is cool when done sparingly or you know also cool if you're like tim fallen and you're doing like the soundtrack to silver surfer and it's just completely over the top um but yeah, like I think it's I think it's fine for like a happy little ending tune. But in general, I don't I don't like the really happy songs. So, <laughs> so I would say that's my least favorite song in the soundtrack is the one that just played. There's nothing wrong with it. It's a nice little tune, but you know I like I like all the sad songs. Did you have any uh, thoughts on that epilogue track? I, I just I mean like I just kind of in the scope of the game. Uh, I was like watching some gameplay, and it, it comes. It's kind of nice because you have that uh, that uh, the final boss battle right before it. Uh, and then it kind of shifts and it kind of shows this nice little scene that's kind of like a sun and like the mountains and stuff and, it, and it's kind of really nice so it kind of fits that and then uh i guess the the sec or, or i think we're listening to the second epilogue track oh yeah yeah i almost skipped that too yeah the second epilogue yeah. track yeah so i guess mm-hmm. i can't really complain because i was saying i don't yeah. like the happy songs but uh mm-hmm. you know before you get too comfortable it uh switches things up uh, with this track here It literally just shows like a mountain and the sun setting and like it's really creepy. Yeah, that's that's awesome. Yeah, it's like mm-hmm. you have a happy little ending, then it just gets spooky out of nowhere. So yeah, I, I take it back complaining about the happiness. The uh the soundtrack redeems itself here. <laughs> uh, but um yeah, I I just love those little spooky arpeggios and then the just sort of the sort of crashing noise yeah. channel effect of whether it's wind or waves, you know. Uh, yeah, it's spooky. I like it. <laughs> and uh, I guess last but not least, I love this track. This is the uh, Game Over track. Um, this is a really cool song. We were talking about a lot of like building effects in the sound design, you know, getting the NES to not sound like an NES. And uh, this just shows he's able to, you know, he's not confined to just his own style in particular. Uh, this track is something like more out of uh, a... a um, like a Dragon Quest or a Final Fantasy sort of tune, so let's give that a listen. It's funny, I didn't think Final Fantasy until you mentioned that. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. I, I just I really like that track. Uh, again, it's the somber sort of sound that I like, and uh, you know, for a soundtrack where we're focused on the sound design, you know, we end on a tune that there's not much to pick at there. You know, there's some vibrato on the notes. Um, maybe the way they decrescendo at the end is kind of interesting, but uh, mm-hmm. it's really just a simple NES tune. But it's it's well written. I like it a lot. Yeah. Cool. Um, so yeah, that's the Magician soundtrack. Uh, you know, if this was new to you, I hope you guys enjoyed it. Um, not every episode of this podcast is necessarily going to be an in-depth look at a particular soundtrack. Uh, we're going to switch it up. Some episodes might be about uh, an entire system, uh, or a certain composer, uh, or just like a certain theme of some kind. But, uh, yeah, every now and again, I'm sure we'll pick different soundtracks to look at, but I'm happy to have, uh, done Magician because it's one of my favorite, uh, NES soundtracks. So, uh, I hope you enjoyed it too, Steve. No, no, it's great. Yeah, and I'm really glad 
uh, for the opportunity to actually take some time to kind of look at it academically um, and kind of pick it apart. So, and your insight on this was really great. Cool, thank you. Um, so yeah, as we mentioned before, this was just the first uh, soundtrack that his company, uh, or the first soundtrack that he made um, for his company, Eurocom. Um, what other uh, soundtracks did he do? So, um, as I mentioned, there's James Bond Jr., uh, which was another NES. I mean, his uh, his output is really quite it's quite great, and it's yeah. quite across many different consoles too. So, just kind of picking and choosing through here, um, and uh, taking a look at some of his other stuff. Uh, he he programmed Drop Zone. Yeah. Um, also, uh, I think Lethal Weapon for NES. Yeah, I, yeah, not even Lethal Weapon Three. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Ferrari Grand Prix Challenge. Uh, oh, that one has some awesome music. Yeah. Yeah. Um, of course, and I guess one of the ones that he kind of talks about too is Jungle Book. All, basically all of them. Um, he did it for uh, Game Boy, Game Gear, SNES, and NES. Um, and I guess maybe the SNES version, I'm not sure if he had necessarily touched because I think he's just listed a special thanks. Oh, okay. Um, but uh, if you take a look on his blog, he has a lot of uh, interesting things and how much he kind of really loved doing it. Um, kind of like, uh, it, it's kind of really cool. He kind of geeks out about it a little bit. Um, so he's also credited for Brutal, Paul's, Paws of Fury, uh, let's Ooh, see, War well, Gods. This is actually is going out, uh, out sound, uh, uh, outside my scope of knowledge, too, because I was so focused on his NES soundtrack that I actually completely uh, missed what else, you know, other stuff he's done. Yeah, I mean, he would, he just did, he was just doing the Ice Age games, Ice Age 2. Uh, he did... 007 Nightfire for GameCube. Yeah. Oh, and, well, you know, though, uh, yeah. I don't... I'm actually not sure that he did... Uh... Oh, I'm sorry. He's the audio lead listed on that. No, he was part of it, but he, yeah. He did The World Is Not Enough. That's the one I'm confused right, about. Right, yeah, because I know uh, later on he was a director at Eurocom, so I think he, yeah. like, did more of a directorial position type stuff and wasn't, like, uh, you know, the, the composer, necessarily. Um, but, uh... Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and unfortunately, I, just, I was just reading recently, too, that Eurocom uh, shut its doors a few years ago. Yeah, 2011, it looked like. Yeah, um, so yeah. it's a bummer, but, you know, I mean, when you read about how, again, how his company got started, you know, re reverse engineering the NES with no help, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, the fact that they were still making games up until, like, 2011 or something like that, like, that's yeah. uh, that's pretty amazing, so I think that's, like, an inspiring story, actually. No, uh, it is. You know, sort of going against all odds type of story. I mean, it, it's, and you hear that so often kind of with like, you know, some of the original guys who were doing this, like the, the, the amount of resources that they had to work with was so little and they still produced like such great music and they still made games that we remember. And that, like, you know, I just think about the budgets that games have now compared to that, you know, like some of these games were two guys right. <laughs> building yeah. the entire game, you know, <laughs> um, which, is, which is crazy. One thing here I saw on his list that was that was interesting to me, and I'm very curious to see if anyone out there actually knows the answer to this. So he's listed as the composer for the Sega Master System version of Sensible Soccer. Now, Sensible Soccer is, I guess, is kind of has a cult following, I believe, and people call it Sensi, and there's a couple different versions of it. Now, Sensible Soccer is a Matt Furness uh, game. Like, he did uh, most of the music. So, okay. I mean, you know, and he did... I can't even name how many games he's done. Um, but so it's very interesting. So I'm not really sure if, you know, what uh, Neil's involvement was that with that. In fact, I have it listed here on uh, the Video Game Music Preservation Fund as Sensible Soccer coming out in 1988, and it came out in 92. So I wonder if this oh. is just mislabeled or something. 
Um, huh. But I mean, I listened to the Sensible Soccer soundtrack um, a couple times today from different versions. There's, a, I mean, it was wildly popular. It was on a bunch of different consoles, and I didn't. And, and Sensible is like a completely different company, um, and I didn't really hear anything that kind of sounded like Neil's music. Um, but I mean, it could have been transcription. It could have been many different things. This is. Um, I do, Oh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, I was going to say, these are good questions to keep in mind because, uh, you know, further on down the road, we could always do like a follow-up episode just on Neil Baldwin, where instead of just yeah. focusing on a specific soundtrack, we can, uh, you know, maybe contact him and, uh, you know, learn more about everything else he's worked on and uh, do more of like a broader overview of his stuff. Yeah. I mean, it just it's just interesting that like you can just kind of scratch the surface and find little questions like that. So mm -hmm. I just thought that was interesting to point out. Uh, and if anyone out there knows the answer to that, I'd love to know exactly what the involvement was. I know that Eurocom handled the Game Gear and uh, Sega Master System port of the game. Um, I'd be very curious to find out who actually worked on it. Hmm. So. Um, oh yeah, I also want to mention that something else that's really cool, and it, it goes to show like how much thought he put into pushing the sound limits of the NES, um, is that in between 2011 and 2013, he actually released a bunch of tools for composing NES music. Uh, he sort of had this period of discovery that, you know, oh my god, like people are interested in the stuff I worked on so long ago, and, uh, you know, so I think it just sort of sparked this... Um, like this inventive uh, bug in his brain. And uh, yeah, it's he made six different programs. Uh, they're all linked on his website, nes-audio.com. Uh, most of them run on the NES. So they're like actual programs. Like you could download the ROM and sit there with a Nintendo controller and write a song. Um, and they have all these different formats. Some is like one's built like LSDJ, which is a popular tracker for the Game Boy. Um, he does another one that's like his own style tracker. He does another one that's built like a drum machine, uh, you know, like step sequencer synth. And uh, he also has a um, this one thing that's more like MML, where it's it's not made to run on the NES. You compile everything on the computer first. Uh, you know, something like halfway between sequencing and programming, and uh, then but then you can dump that file and run it on the Nintendo. And uh, the advantage to that uh, pro, pro, uh, approach is that. Uh, you're not running like visuals on the NES, so you can really milk the Nintendo for all it's worth. So like that's sort of like the most advanced way you could sort of uh, pick out the system. So, um, I mean, and, and his tools can do crazy, crazy stuff where you're running, you're like overclocking the NES basically, so you get some really, really nutty sounds out of it. Um, actually, yeah, I have an example here. Uh, I think it might be from the last or second to last program he released called uh, Cajones, mm -hmm. and uh, which is a great name by the way. And, uh, yeah, if, if you imagine that, you know, he started with Magician where he did all these little tricks and, you know, towards the end of his NES library, the sound is more advanced still. And then you jump forward to, you know, 2013 or something, and you can see that there's a huge leap in the sound quality and he achieves something that just quite frankly, doesn't sound like a Nintendo anymore. It's uh, very impressive. That's crazy. <laughs> it's awesome. Yeah, I love yeah. it. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, very cool stuff. It, uh, again, that's why that's why I was happy to poke at Magician because you you see the little like you know seeds of inspiration in Magician that uh, lead towards the stuff that he came up with more recently. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, so yeah, I guess that about wraps up this part of the episode. Um, so normally we would want to do a questions and comments section. Uh, so of course, as the first episode, we don't ha- have any yeah. questions yet, but, um, <laughs> There's a couple ways you can contact us. Um, ideally, what we'd prefer is uh, if you have any questions or comments, just uh, use the SoundCloud system. Uh, log into SoundCloud, and just anywhere in the episode, you can uh, use the commenting system to leave a comment on the track. And uh, if you don't use SoundCloud, though, you can also hit us up on Twitter. Uh, my handle is IllusoryWall, and uh, Steve's handle is APOC. With, uh, how would you explain that? <laughs> it's like A underscore P underscore zero underscore C. Yeah, it's yeah. APOC with, uh, yeah, AP zero C with the uh, underscores in between. So, uh, yeah, you can also just hit us up on Twitter if you have any questions. So, yeah, absolutely. The questions can be related to the episode or it could just be about anything video game music related. Uh, yeah. so, you know, if there's a soundtrack you like and you want to know how a sound effect worked in it or whatever, um, or a question about if we know something about certain composers or whatever, we'll try to find that out for you. So, so for our penultimate section of the show, uh, we're doing Name That Game, where we play a segment of audio from a particular game soundtrack, and you can try to play along at home and guess the game. Uh, the first person to guess it correctly will be, uh, you know, we don't have any gifts for you or anything. Uh, <laughs> not not yet at this point, but, the, you know. The pride of knowing that you were right. Yeah, the pride of knowing you were right, and we'll, yeah. we'll read your name on the air or something. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, see if, see if you can guess this tune here. And just to clarify, too, the sort of rules we have for this is that uh, it's all going to be actual game music that came out. So we're not going to do any, like, unreleased games, prototype games. And uh, we're going to stick exclusively to stuff that uh, came out uh, when the systems were in their heyday. So, uh, you know, it's going to be tracks from the 80s and early 90s, etc. So, uh, yeah, good luck. And uh, thanks for listening. And I guess that about wraps it up, right, Steve? Yeah, yep. Cool. Yeah, thanks so much for doing this. Um, I guess we're just going to end on, we're going to close our episodes with a song of the week. Uh, And for this week, I've picked another Neil Baldwin track. Oh, nice. This is, oh, yeah, and actually this would be the perfect time to bring it up. You mentioned the other soundtracks he did uh, earlier, but there Mm -hmm. were also two NES games that were unreleased. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. There was uh, Hero Quest and uh, Eric the Viking. Uh, Hero Quest you can find the ROM for. You know, there were prototypes that leaked. Uh, Eric the Viking, on the other hand, is completely lost. Um, no one has a ROM of it. No one even knew it existed until Neil Baldwin created his site recently. And, uh, he managed to keep track of, like, the binary files for the soundtrack. Uh, so he, you know, he recompiled it, he released the NSF, he released the whole soundtrack. So it's really cool. We have a soundtrack to this completely lost NES game. Uh, and, you know, he's apparently contacted all of his former co-workers, and I think no one can find the thing. So, yeah, sadly lost forever, but um, at at least the music lives on. So uh, here's the uh, main theme to the lost uh, Eric the Viking game. Uh, Thanks for listening. This is Retro Game Audio.